Welcome to this conversation. I'm your host, Teresa Keller, and my guest today is Jerry Hill. And Jerry Hill is going to talk with us today about upcoming events to celebrate the life of Martin Luther King and specific events that we need to be aware of and probably some of the background about Martin Luther King. Jerry Hill, thank you for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Well, you've been active in civil rights and race issues all of your life. The first question I want to ask you is, what did Martin Luther King mean to you? I guess the word that comes immediately to my mind is hope, uh, that he did give the uh, Black community hope back in the 60s uh, and a way to achieve uh, his goals through nonviolence. And I think for me, that was very pertinent to what I was about and what I still continue to try to do. Why did the nonviolent part appeal to you? Because I've thought so many times that if I had been in the situation of Black Americans earlier in the century or in the previous century now, I would have just wanted to bust something in. No, I don't think I had violent instincts. I think you, you look at what the country, the nation, the world had done and what had what had been accomplished or achieved through violence was not what I was looking to achieve. So I would not want to use the same tactics that they use to uh, get what they were out to get to try to to get what I wanted, which was peace. So that should be, to me, should be done in a peaceful manner um, that I don't think the violence would justify the means if what we're looking at is peace and justice and restoration. And we do that through violent means. This is a crazy question to, to try to ask, and I'm not sure how to ask it, but you wanted peace. What was it in your life that you experienced and felt that made the message of hope and peace so important? Well, I think it was just a matter of, of being a whole person, accepted, a person that can make contributions, not only as an individual, but as a race that did have something to offer offered to the society. And I don't think that was always recognized. It was assumed that we were less than and that we really didn't have a lot to offer except for, for the most part, menial labor. And growing up in the neighborhood in the family I grew up in, that was always pressing towards a higher mark. And that was to uh, be able to give back meaningfully to society. And I think a lot of people, my grandparents and great-grandparents, what they were able to accomplish was amazing for the time. Without education, they worked, they built, they endured a lot of hardships to make it better for their families. Tell us more about that family background. I mean, I know your family very well from my time at Emory & Henry, and your family was very important in the Emory & Henry community. But tell us more about what that was like, those things that you're describing about what your family wanted to accomplish and how they did. I've done a lot of family research. Of course, my, my paternal grandfather and great-grandfather were from here in Washington County. My maternal uh, paternal grandmother was from Hawkins County, Tennessee. And she came to the area and worked at Emory Henry College with Dr. Hillman, the Hillmans. My grandfather, uh, Robert Hill, worked uh, as a sharecropper on property here in Washington County. His father was also Robert Hill that within the last year or so I found out was a slave at, I can't ever think of the name of the property. We always called it the Garden Inn property between Glade and Emory. 
big house up on the right going towards Glade. He was a slave there owned by um, the son of Colonel Byers, who was one of the founders of Emory and Emory College. So your family says we're going to achieve things. Yes. Tell me about your family, your brothers and sisters. It's an amazing story. Well, I guess it was growing up in the Hill household, you didn't have a choice <laughs> but to achieve. Five of the six children attended Emory and Henry College. Four of us graduated from Emory and Henry College and went on to, in some way, give back to not only the local community, but society in general. We were taught that you, live, you leave things better than you found them. So I think that was important for all of us whether it was in education, in law, community service, as a teacher aide, that was always that you leave things better than you found them. And I think Martin Luther King, uh, not to compare to Martin Luther King, but that was what he was about. And a lot of people, I think, in the African-American community here in Washington County did the same thing. They, they endured a lot to make it better. And a lot of times they didn't see much progress, but over the years, I can look back and see how in increments things uh, got better and continue to get better, but we still have a ways to go. Tell me about your career. You didn't make your entire career here in Washington County. You got oh, your degree from Memory and Henry, and then what? Yeah, and then I graduate degree from uh, Radford and a certificate uh, for school administration. I went to Loudoun County, uh, Virginia, and taught music and also was a school administrator elementary principal. And leaving Southwest Virginia, going to Northern Virginia was an eye-opening experience for me just because of the diversity. I had never been exposed to different uh, religions, languages, customs, food, and it really made a big difference in my life and how, and my perspective on things, just to work with children K through five from various and very different backgrounds, socioeconomic status, and to bring all of that together as a community. So you went on in education, uh, elementary principal, teacher of music. Tell me a little bit more about some of your siblings, because one of them served on our board of trustees at Emory and Henry College, I think. Oh, yes. And a graduate from Emory and North Carolina Central, and she had a law degree and worked with um, the postal, retired from the postal service, but she also did some more work, I think, with abused women and, and children. That was her, I think, her focus was to work with uh, victims of abuse. And Dennis? Dennis retired as a principal here in Washington County. When he retired, was the principal at Houston High School. And again, also giving in the community, working in the community as um, a mentor, as a coach, I think in a, a lot of instances served as a, a, a male role model for some of the kids that may not have had their father in their lives. So he did that. Uh, Reese went to Ferrum College, didn't graduate, came back here and started his own photography business. He's involved in community service also, does a lot of photography for us for the March and has made donations. And he and his wife have been active. And Sheila also has worked with... Uh, special needs students. And I think we're all about giving back. And of course, Bobby, who has, is deceased, worked all over with his focus in injustice. In, in uh, and that was pretty much <laughs> across the United States, being involved in different events and planning and making progress. 
Well, that is an amazing legacy. And from a time when the fight was still ongoing for civil rights, which brings us back to Martin Luther King. But Jerry, I have done a terrible thing here. I do this too often, but I've missed the lead. We're talking about Martin Luther King's celebration, but I haven't asked you about the events that we're that we want to promote and encourage people to attend. So will you tell us about those things? Okay, we have two events coming up. One will be on Thursday, January 12th. We'll be at St. Thomas Episcopal Church in Abingdon, and that is 124 East Main Street. Our speaker will be Dr. William Turner. He's an author and he wrote uh, The Harlan Renaissance, and it's a book about Black life in Appalachia back when uh, they really weren't being recognized, uh, the contributions that they made and how they were uh, sort of in servitude to the companies, uh, white supremacy, racism, and a lot of stories that hadn't been told. Dr. Turner did a lot of research and also his uh, own memories and, and family history put that together to write this book. You know, we had interviewed him for this uh, radio show, Once Upon a Time. And when you say that quickly, people might misunderstand. It's Harlan Renaissance, not you think of the Harlem Renaissance in New York, but this is Harlan as in Harlan, Kentucky. Uh, yes. And so he has great insight on that and is a very interesting man. So that one's Thursday, January the 12th at six o'clock at St. Thomas Episcopal Church. Why should people come? I think uh, it'd be interesting. I've heard him speak before. I think he will show people's individual dignity and value, I think, through his research. And again, stories that haven't been told. I think we all have stories that haven't been told. But in his research, in his family history, he tells that dignity that people felt like they didn't have worth. They were contributing basically through labor and coal mining, but they didn't matter under the structure in the region, they really didn't matter, except if they didn't work, the code mines may have closed down. But other than being a, a laborer, they didn't matter. They didn't have a voice. They weren't valued. And I think his book, what he says, his talk about there is value. Everyone has value. So that one's on Thursday, January the 12th, Dr. William Turner, six o'clock at the Episcopal Church in Abingdon. But then the the big event, the annual event, is the Saturday March, the Martin Luther King Day March that happens in Abingdon. Tell us about that on Saturday the 14th. Hey, this will be the 36th annual March. This is the 36th year that we've had uh, a celebration. At the beginning, they didn't march at the first several years. Uh, it will begin, uh, we will gather at Charles Wesley United Methodist Church at 322 East Main Street at one o'clock. The march begins at 1.30, and we invite businesses, religious organizations, individuals, schools to join us in the march and displaying banners, signs, posters, whatever you would like to display that promotes justice, peace, community, restoration. Uh, this year's march will be led by at least three of the original planners that were involved 36 years ago, and that includes uh, Reese Shear, Joan Boone, and Elizabeth Hill. So we will have a vehicle for them to ride in at the front of the march to be recognized as some of the original planners of the march 36 years ago. Uh, the march will be led songs by Dennis Hill, Civil Rights Songs, and Tom Peterson will be playing the saxophone. APEC, the sponsor of the event, will lead the marchers. When we get to 
Abbott United Methodist Church will have an indoor celebration. Dr. John Holloway, uh, the Vice President for Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Belonging at Emory and Henry College will be the MC. And what we have done is uh, a theme, and I haven't, it's just a quote from Dr. King. Uh, people are writing letters. Uh, Dr. King wrote a letter from Birmingham Jail. We are asking people, people to write letters to their children, to the past, to the future, to Dr. King, to religious organizations, this letter expressing where we are and where we hope to be in the future. The quote that we're using for the theme is, love is the only cement that can hold this broken community together. When I am commanded to love, I am commanded to restore community, to resist injustice, to meet the needs of my brothers. So various people, different people will be writing letters to address how they feel we are doing with that commandment to love, restore, resist injustice. Jerry Hill, my guest today, talking to us about Martin Luther King Day celebrations, and especially the Saturday March on uh, January the 14th, 36 years of this march and solidified celebration of Martin Luther King. And Jerry Hill, you told me that Elizabeth Hill is one of the people being leading the march because she was one of the organizers. Gee, you don't know who that is, do you? Oh, yeah, she's been around a while. <laughs> <laughs> Tell yeah, us about my, that woman. My mother and father were involved in the the first planning. I think it was actually initiated by Reese Shearer, and I was gone in Northern Virginia then, but it's been several years ago. And then I think, that, and then it grew and they started having the march. And now for the last several years, it's been the, the culminating event has been at Abbey United Methodist Church. What's going to go on in that ceremony at two o'clock? You said John Holloway is the MC, and you talked about writing letters, but what is the actual program at two o'clock? Yeah, the letters, some of the letters will be read as uh, they relate to the, the theme. Uh, we have the Wolf Hills Jazz Quartet will be uh, playing as people gather and also doing the program. The Mosaic Community Choir, which was established to perform at the Juneteenth celebration at Emory Henry College, will be performing. It's just a group of people that we get together whenever we're asked to sing from uh, actually several churches all through the out the county, some from Smith County, and we've had uh, people to join us from Bristol. So we will be singing during the program. Uh, Marvel Wheeler, a local pianist and former music teacher, will be performing. And Dr. Jerry Jones, who many of you know, will be playing the piano and leading us with Lift Every Voice and Sing, We Shall Overcome. And there will also be a slideshow um, showing um, pictures and promotions from our past events, all that we could find. What if somebody's listening right now and they go, oh, Saturday, 1.30 March, 2 o'clock program at the Methodist Church in Abingdon? Sounds interesting, but... It's not meant for me. I wouldn't fit in. I I don't think I'll go. What would you say to that person? I would think if you are a, are a person that is uh, concerned or have a passion for peace, uh, unity, being inspired, I think this is to commemorate Dr. King, but it's also to inspire and give people hope for the future. And I think that's that's important that it's not just to commemorate Dr. King, but it's also to challenge those of us that are still here today 
to do more to reach that dream. You were talking about the letters and you were talking about the theme that love is the only cement, love and community, and that if we're committed to those things that we need to resist injustice, how are we doing in this community? As I say, I think progress has been made all over. If we look at what is going on, and and I, I wrote a letter and I don't have it in front of me, but I just thought thought about when Dr. King says love is the cement to hold things together, but today we're substituting lies for love, vitriol for virtue, hate and divisiveness instead of unity. So I think in the last several years, I think that we've really taken a few steps backwards, that dishonesty, self-preservation, political gain is, is what people pursue as opposed to justice, peace, bringing people together, valuing people, respecting people. I think we've really have, I think Dr. King would be very disappointed in, in what he would see today. I want to ask you about something very specific along those lines. Uh, in Virginia, it was about a year ago, exactly when a new governor took office and uh, issued an executive order that teachers in public schools shouldn't talk about anything, quote, divisive and specifically referred to critical race theory, the idea that there is pervasive racism in this country, and that it's somehow divisive to talk about racism, uh, that, that talking about racism is divisive rather than bring us together. And by the way, that mandate, it has now been abolished, and the plan of reporting teachers who talked about critical race theory has been abandoned, it didn't work, and people were sending messages, as I understand it, more about how great the education system was and that this ban on divisive talk was not needed. What, what was your response to all of that? Well, as an educator for 30 plus years, I had never heard of critical race theory. I have done workshops in schools on equity, diversity, inclusion, Never had heard of critical race theory. I think that was uh, thrown out there to signify something else. And I think we, we, the schools that earnestly talk about racism, systemic racism, we're not talking about necessarily individual, talking about systemic racism that is embedded into the justice system, sometimes into the school system, the way people are hired, the way people are devalued. I think it's important to talk about that. And it's not a matter of being trying to divide or make people uncomfortable. Sometimes being made uncomfortable is where, when progress is made. So, and I would say for a lot of the religious organizations that sort of got on that bandwagon of uh, critical race theory and we, so, sometimes you have to feel uncomfortable. Sometimes the sermon isn't comfortable. That's because you need to change. So... <laughs> When we get past trying to placate and make everybody feel comfortable, nobody ever asked how I felt. Did I feel uncomfortable when they talked about slavery when I was in high school? It wasn't a consideration whether I felt comfortable about it. It's history. Whether I feel comfortable about it or not, it's history. It's there. It will be there. And I think it's important that we recognize that. You know, it it makes me think of the term white privilege, and it seems to me like this reeks with white privileges. We don't want 
white children to have to hear about what our ancestors did to black people. And it might make the white children feel like they are somehow tainted or that they did something wrong. But isn't that isn't that white privilege in itself is to talk about it because it might make us look bad? It, it is. And I think people, again, where we, we would choose to believe a lie over the truth is systemic racism, institutional racism still has effects today. So when we're looking at history, we're looking at what happened 100 years ago, 150 years ago, and how is that still ingrained into the system? And what do we do to change the system? We may not change individual people, but the system, the banks, the educational system, uh, you know, people that lend money, um, the judicial system, if we look at those systems, that would be a great step forward. I'm, I'm not that concerned about individuals. I'm more concerned about systems. <laughs> Right, exactly, which is the idea of critical race theory, that it is the system mm-hmm. that is the racist, the racism problem, not, not necessarily individuals or as pro- individuals as projected onto systems. But we're getting away from uh, Martin Luther King, and I do want to go back and have you just reiterate the importance of Martin Luther King. What does he mean? Why does he get a federal holiday that we all should honor? Well, I think that's that's the importance of the celebration locally because I don't feel like we all feel like we should honor. You know, the school system has not designated that day the kids are in school. I think a lot of people look at Martin Luther King, you look at what he did and what he was trying to do, and people look at the celebration of Martin Luther King, and a lot of people, as a holiday for Black folks. And that's a concern that I have, that even in Washington County, there are certain things we will celebrate as a county. But over the years that I've been involved, elected officials, some people, school boards or whatever, have not participated ever in one of these celebrations. And and one of the things we're doing is making sure that they get an invitation, whether they come or not. But it's important that this be seen as a celebration for all people. Dr. King was preaching nonviolence and acceptance of everyone, uh, valuing everyone. I don't see how that becomes a black and white thing. So I think the message is important that this holiday is to commemorate what he stood for and how he was trying to reach his goal, which was through nonviolence, to be celebrated by everyone. Tell us about his role in voting and how did that affect you? Did I didn't have any problems. I'm not quite that old because I would not have voted. I would have voted the first time in 67, 68. I think it was, I think for a lot of people that I, I, I've known people that never voted. I've known people, have actually met people that never, some African-Americans in Loudoun County that had never, and uh, Caucasians that had never voted until Barack Obama ran for president, had never voted. They felt like it didn't matter that the voice wasn't being heard, it didn't matter, and had never voted. And one of those, a, a Caucasian male that was a Vietnam Vietnam vet, had never voted. That's, that's amazing. And I'm sorry for making you older than you are, because I think <laughs> you and I are kind of in the same age range, but uh, so much of the civil rights era was happening at that point. What about desegregation? Uh, desegregation is 
what happened. And when people asked that, and that was the problem, they desegregated a lot of things, but they did not integrate. So you schools were desegregated and black kids went to white schools, but we were not integrated into the system. We were there. We were not valued, maybe on the on the football field, on the baseball field, on the basketball court. But desegregating, putting people together does not cause integration, does not cause belonging, does not cause equity, does not foster inclusion. So I think the mistake that was made is we desegregated and thought that was the end of the process. We did not integrate. So people with different customs, traditions, values were not integrated. You came and you assimilated to what you were being in, uh, desegregated into. And a lot of people lost their identity in that because a lot of the traditions and things that were in another community were lost when they were there was desegregation because we didn't we didn't choose to integrate uh, people into what was already there to, to combine to mesh those things together. And I think we still have the same thing today, still going on. Not just racial, but social, economically, religiously. We we don't want to integrate. There's still segregation. So integrating with people who are well on some superficial level different than we are is always the hard lesson, isn't it? And that when we do integrate with different cultures and different people, it's only enriching. And that's what Martin Luther King was trying to tell us. And once again, Jerry Hill, would you please tell us the dates and the times of the opportunity we have to go celebrate the life and achievements of Martin Luther King? Okay, um, Thursday, January the 12th, six o'clock p.m. at St. Thomas Episcopal Church in Abingdon, Virginia. We'll have Dr. Turner speaking, uh, the author of the Harlan, Harlan, Kentucky Renaissance. And then on Saturday, January 14th, beginning at 1.30 of March from Charles Wesley United Methodist Church to Abingdon United Methodist Church, followed by a celebration. Uh, MC will be Dr. John Holloway from Emory and Henry College with reading of letters pertaining to the theme and also some musical musical selections, and we hope to see you all there. And my guest today is Jerry Hill. What an honor to speak with you, Jerry. I will see you on Saturday the 14th, if not before, and hope that anybody who's having any resistance to the idea will just go to these events. It will only be enriching and rewarding. We look forward to seeing you there. And thanks to the listeners. This is Teresa Keller. This conversation Wednesdays at 6, Sundays at 2, on WEHC Emory and in WISE FM Wise territory. If you miss part of this and want to hear it or hear older programs, you can go to our podcast, just search WEHC This Conversation, or better yet, go to WEHCFM.com and look for the archives and you'll find links there. Thanks again, everybody. Happy New Year and see you at the Martin Luther King celebrations.